Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from generally center-left to center-right. I'm Will Salatan, a writer at the Bulwark, and I'm sitting in this week for Mona Charon. I'm joined by our regular panel of Bill Galston with the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker, who writes Eyes on the Right for Substack. Our special guest this week is Frances Kissling, who has played a central role in the study and practice of abortion around the world. She was president of Catholics for Choice for 25 years, co-founded the Global Fund for Women, and currently teaches reproductive health ethics at UNAM, a university in Mexico. Welcome, one and all. Let's start off with a topic that's been in the news for the past couple of weeks, thanks to the Supreme Court. And it's likely to be with us through the midterms and beyond. And of course, the topic is abortion. Francis, you are the wisest person I know on this issue, and you've written about it from many perspectives. Let me ask you to start with the pro-choice perspective. Right now, the Biden administration and the Democratic Party generally are being widely criticized for not doing enough in response to the Dobbs decision that struck down Roe versus Wade. For people who are upset about the court's ruling and want to do what they can to protect women's access to abortion, what exactly should they be doing? Where should they focus their efforts and where should they not focus their efforts? I'll start with where I think they should focus their efforts, and that is on access to abortion services in states where it is legal and is likely to remain as legal in those states as it is today. Places like Illinois, New York, California, Washington State, the major urban areas. And what I mean when I say they should focus on access to abortion is, at least for me, the goal of all of this is to see that women get quality abortion care services who want them. And that means that, first of all, we need to give more money to the funding of women's abortions. There are a very high percentage of women who simply cannot afford an abortion and their costs are going to go up dramatically as they have to travel from at least half of the states to some other state in order to get an abortion. So you should support the abortion funds that are available. The second thing that you should do is most of the abortion funds only support the abortion itself and often don't support the full costs of the abortion. And so there are ancillary funds that provide housing, travel, food, childcare funding, all of those things that make it more possible for a woman to go for abortion. And those need to be supported as well. The other thing on the access side that needs to be done is we need to improve the number of providers and the institutions that are providing abortion in the states where abortion is legal. We simply will not have enough doctors We have a situation in most of those states where public hospitals are not providing abortion at all, and we need to do what we can to beef that up. The person in America who's done the most around that issue is Warren Buffett, who has a major program that he has supported over the years where he has provided significant funding to teaching hospitals so that they can increase the numbers of abortions that they do. The thing that they shouldn't do is just reflexively write a check to every national abortion organization that they have been writing checks to forever. It's not that Planned Parenthood doesn't need money. It's not that the National Abortion Rights League doesn't need money. It's that that's not the first place to go, in my opinion. 
And the other thing that I think we have to be careful of in that I'm going to move right into the what we shouldn't be doing as much of. I think that we have to be more careful about where we spend money on court cases and on efforts to elect pro-choice individuals and efforts to change legislatures from red to blue. It's not that those aren't important things, and it's not that nothing should be spent on them. But frankly, in the 26 or so states where abortion is going to become essentially illegal, our opportunity to change the political climate in those states is very small. We should concentrate on the immediate need women will have for abortions. Okay. Now, before I bring in the other panelists, I want to ask you one more quick question from the other side. For pro-life people, for people who want to prevent abortions or reduce the number of abortions, what should they be doing? What can they do constructively? Well, what they're saying they are going to do is that they are now going to provide more funding, more care for women who would have had to have an abortion, but now will not have access to an abortion, that they are going to concentrate on mothers and children and improve that situation. And I think that certainly is a good thing to do. I'm skeptical because in my experience, they could have been doing that all along. You know, there are women who have had abortions over the last 50 years who, if they had the financial resources, would not have had them. And they have not found the support that they need from the public nor from the government. Okay. Bill, let me bring you in here. I would like to ask you about what the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress are doing about this issue. So among other things, Biden has issued an executive order. He says vaguely he's going to protect medication abortion, abortion pills against any state laws that might interfere with that or state action. Democrats in Congress pushing a bill now to guarantee the right to travel across state lines to get an abortion. Your pro-life state can't block you from going to a pro-choice state. What do you think of these measures? And if we end up in a conflict between the federal government and the states on pills or on travel, which side do you think is in a better position legally? Which side is in a better position politically? I mean, who's likely to win that fight? (laughs) My impression is that on medical abortions, the administration probably has the law on its side, and it certainly shouldn't yield ground on that issue in my opinion, whether travel funds are going to be available at the national level. I don't know. It's possible. Uh, And conceivably, it could be achieved by reprogramming some already appropriated funds. But in general, I think the administration needs to make a strategic choice. And I would urge the administration to make its choice along the lines that Francis has already sketched. The Dobbs decision in the first instance has had the effect of moving the point of decision back to the states. We're going to be, at least for the short to medium term, a patchwork nation on abortion. I would not advise the administration to try to undo through legislation what the Supreme Court did in the Dobbs decision. I don't think that would be a winning strategy, and I don't think it would be a wise strategy. My own view is that 
the issue having been denationalized should probably remain denationalized, at least for a while, until the American public has a chance to assess the consequences of the new patchwork situation. But in the meantime, I totally agree with Francis on this. The emphasis should be on making sure that the states that continue to regard abortion as legally permissible have the resources to continue to do what they need. And that is in part a question at the national level, but even more so at the state legislative level. If there's a big legal fight about the sorts of things the administration is already doing, I'm not expert enough in the area to predict how that fight is going to come out. But to repeat, I think it would be counterproductive at this point for either side, either the pro-choice or the pro-life side, to try to re-nationalize the issue and create a uniform regime for all 50 states. Okay. Linda, I'm curious about how these federal versus state issues play out from a conservative point of view. It looks right now like Democrats think that they have a winning issue on these interstate issues, on the right to travel, on access to the pills. And I have not seen Republicans generally pushing to block travel or, for the most part, even enforce a ban on getting the pills. They've talked about it vaguely. So maybe Republicans agree that it's a losing issue for them too. Are they right? And as a conservative, how do you feel about whether federal policy or state policy should prevail in these areas? And what do you think of the whole idea of restricting travel or, or use of the mail to get pills? Well, first of all, I think the easy one is restricting travel or the use of the mail. Certainly the free movement of Americans from one state to another is something that is a basic right that I believe is guaranteed in the Constitution. And the whole question of uh, being able to get mail, prescription abortifacients that come through the mail is something that, again, should not be restricted by the states. Who is it that's going to determine what medications one can and cannot receive in the mail in various states? How intrusive would we have to be to try to determine whether a medication that might have other purposes, for example, some of the abortifacient drugs I understand are used with ectopic pregnancies, can even be used for other problems, and therefore, you know, determining that it was actually prescribed for an abortion would be extremely intrusive. So I hope they don't go down that path. Certainly in places like Texas, there is appetite among the most radical members of the pro-life movement to restrict movement of people. I mean, after all, they passed a law that has been essentially upheld, which allows any individual with or without any particular interest in the pregnancy of a woman, not necessarily the father or the parent of an underage child, but just basically anyone to prevent a woman from getting an abortion in the state, what would stop them from passing a law that says that travel would not be permitted? If that were to go to the Supreme Court, I think it would be shot down. But getting back to the question, the overarching question, which is, should this be a federal responsibility? Should it be a state responsibility? I have to admit that I was always one who thought that it would be better if it was decided at the state level that there is a tremendous diversity in terms of views on when and if abortion should be permissible. 
and therefore it was better decided closest to the people at the level of government that is closer to the people, namely the states. That was before the radicalization of this issue and the radicalization of the Republican Party. The Democrats have often focused more on national elections and national issues than they have on state and local issues. And that has been to their detriment. That is why there are 30 state legislatures that are controlled by the Republicans. That is why the Republicans are ascendant in so many states, why they control so many governorships. And I think Democrats really need to begin to do the hard work of organizing at the state level, making state races important, focusing on state legislative races, and essentially trying to roll back what has been the radicalization in some of these states. And a state like Texas is a good example. Texas, the population has changed dramatically over the years there. And even though Hispanics are now more likely to vote for Republican candidates at the national level, even at the state level. Uh, It remains to be seen whether or not you couldn't make some inroads. The Democrats couldn't do some better work in trying to get better legislative candidates and run better races in those state races. So on that point, the question of radicalization and states going too far, Damon, Some states have already moved to reinstate trigger laws. These are bans on abortion that were passed before the Dobbs decision in case Roe versus Wade was overturned. Some of those laws ban abortion even in cases of rape. And Linda brought up the example of Texas. Ohio has a similar law, a ban at six weeks. And we've already seen this week the effect of these laws. A 10-year-old girl who was pregnant by rape had to travel from Ohio to Indiana to get an abortion because the Ohio law bans nearly all abortions at six weeks. Are these laws excessive? Do they go beyond what most Americans or even most Ohioans would support? And are they morally excessive? Do they go beyond what we should support? Well, I I certainly think so as someone who's pro-choice, though kind of in the muddled middle on it. But when you get down to six-week bans, when many women don't even know they're pregnant yet, and then start questioning this sort of exceptional limits that are usually placed on such laws about the health of the mother or rape or incest, then I think we really start transgressing what I think most Americans' common sense would tell them should be allowed, and the polling backs that up. It is an interesting question. I think if you look at the history of the pro-life movement, you sort of, if you look at it fairly, you have to conclude that it's been pretty restrained on the whole. I mean, of course, there were, especially in the like late 80s and 90s, there were egregious, extreme activists who led over into violence at abortion clinics, but that sort of went away in more recent decades. And at least the way it looks to me is that given that the stated pro-life view is that there's effectively a Holocaust taking place in every Planned Parenthood clinic in the country every day. They have responded with incredible, I think, patience over the years in not becoming more radical, simply patiently working to pass laws at various state levels that are sort of test cases that they hope will kind of make their way up through the court system and eventually make it to 
the Supreme Court leading to what we just experienced, the Dobbs decision. That's the success of this multi-decade long project of theirs. But the kind of dark irony of this is that what we have now are lots of laws around the country in red states that are probably more draconian than public opinion, even in those states, would support for the reason that, again, they were passed. Either they're laws that are still on the books from before Roe v. Wade came down and are now seemingly back in force, or they're laws that were passed as test cases that were designed to kind of move the line closer to conception at the court. But now that the court has knocked down Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, we're left to the situation of these states where very draconian laws are in force. And are they going to be now enforced by prosecutors? Are the police going to start going in and arresting women and doctors for these things? It seems like if the pro-life forces remain kind of level-headed and prudent, they would support these states going in and kind of rewriting some of these laws, pulling them back a little bit to find a, a more stable place in public opinion. But then again, that goes against the polarization and kind of negative partisanship of our moment. I mean, when do you you see one or the other side in our politics kind of voluntarily moderating their position for the sake of winning votes. It doesn't happen that much. And so I'm sort of skeptical it will. And because of that, I think we might be in a situation where the forces on the right that have pushed this so hard are in serious danger of overreaching here. Now, I I said on the podcast a couple of months ago to, I think, Bill, Bill thought that if the court actually did strike down Roe that this would very much change the dynamic for the midterm elections and give Democrats a boost and hurt Republicans. I was a little skeptical about that because I don't think in and of itself overturning Roe, this would necessarily happen. But of course, the second part of the equation is, well, what do the state laws look like that we're left with after Roe is overturned? And that's where I do think we're beginning to see a little bit of evidence that this could be a sign of the right going way too far. As you mentioned, Will, the really horrifying story out of Ohio with this 10-year-old girl who was raped and having to go to Indiana to get an abortion. The idea that she had to cross state lines to deal with this horrifying situation. I think most Americans probably are repelled by stories like this, and it is inevitable that we are going to get more like them as the post row world unfolds with these laws on the books as written. So the Republicans, I think, you know, prayed for this outcome at the court for decades. I suspect some of them may well uh, rue it unfolding the way it seems to be uh, before our eyes right now. Damon, can I follow up with you on one question about that Ohio rape case, which sure, I agree sure. is very important. So many, many critics on the right, including the uh, Attorney General of Ohio and a lot of people in conservative media, initially portrayed this story about the 10-year-old rape survivor as a likely fabrication or as dubious. And they are facing a lot of blowback now that the story has been backed up by an arrest, which is reportedly based on the suspect confessing to the rape. 
Were these critics wrong to doubt this story? Were they wrong to publicly question it? And this has on many things, I come down somewhere in the middle. I think that it is perfectly reasonable for anyone, and especially a journalist, to have responded to the initial story out of the Indy Star. It's a reputable news outlet. The author of the original story is a seasoned veteran reporter, but her piece was based on somewhat thin sourcing. It was a solid story, but it was not so solid of a story given the polarized reality of the post-Roe world with activists on the pro-choice side latching on to stories like this for the sake of advancing their side of the conflict. It is a healthy response to hear a story like that and to put a bit of a question mark after it to not simply run with it as simply true. But that's very different than the critics on the right. Their response was a kind of mirror image opposite of the left-leaning activist response. Their response is to say, I'm sure this is fake. But of course, they were not sure it's any fake any more than those on the other side were sure it was valid. And so I think a much better position are were journalists who ran some pieces on this saying, yeah, maybe it's true, but here's why we should be a little unclear until we get some more solid confirmation of the story. And so what we've seen since then, I think critics who are going after the right wing skeptics who went a little too far in the dismissing direction, I think it's valid for them to come in for some heat here. I think those who are going after the journalists, who I think were a little bit more skeptical, I think they're overreaching a little bit. You know, it's possible to work the refs in both directions. That's a a phrase that uh, liberals have often used to describe the way conservatives sort of work mainstream media outlets to kind of rein in their criticism of uh, some conservative overreaching. It can go in the other direction, too, and we're in a very hot-button, very tense moment here post-Dobbs. And so I, I would urge everyone to kind of keep a little cool if you can, even though that seems sort of unrealistic <laughs> these days to ever uh, counsel something like that. Bill, can I go to you uh, next since uh, Damon name-checked you on this? So you guys have been discussing the political fallout, and Damon was just talking about the more draconian laws, the trigger laws, the six-week bans, and so forth. But what about the other end of the spectrum? The Mississippi law itself is 15 weeks. That's the law that Ron DeSantis signed in Florida, 15 weeks. That's the law that Glenn Youngkin wants in Virginia. How do you think this 15-week limit will play politically? Are these governors on safe ground or not? And if they are... Is there anything that pro-choicers could do to turn the public against a 15-week limit? Well, I've done a pretty deep dive into public opinion on the abortion question. And to tell you the truth, it looks to me as though 15 weeks represents about the center of gravity of public opinion on this question. So I don't think that an overwhelming majority of people in states other than deep blue or deep red states, will be dissatisfied with that as a kind of a point of equipoise. The way I read public opinion, it pretty much takes the trimester system as the framework for its own rough and ready analysis. And the public seems to think that in roughly speaking, the first trimester, restrictions should be 
very, very narrow or even non-existent. In the second trimester, there should be significant strings attached to the availability of abortion, and that in the third trimester, the presumption is very strongly against it. It's also my understanding, and Francis, who knows this issue inside out, can correct me, that the 15-week limit would leave the majority of abortions that are now performed available to the people who want them. Uh, And that's likely to take a fair amount of pressure off governors and state legislatures that have selected that as the go-no-go line. I should also say in response to Damon that I think that the survey evidence is beginning to bear out his suspicion that as people encounter draconian state laws, that the court's decision at one remove is having potentially a measurable effect on the midterm elections. A number of veteran pollsters have already noted some movement in the generic ballot numbers that are a little hard to account for through any other explanation. Okay, Francis, since you got name checked there, can I bring you in here on the 15-week question? First of all, to Bill's point, isn't it true that if abortions allowed up to 15 weeks, that would cover the vast, vast majority of abortions? And secondly, to the extent that it doesn't, isn't it true that most clinics or a lot of clinics already don't do abortions past roughly the first trimester and that you have to travel anyway to get an abortion beyond that point? How different is that world? A 15-week bans in some states and not in others. How different is that from the status quo? It's not dramatically different in that sense. Over 90% of abortions occur within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, never mind three weeks later. So 15 weeks is generous if your goal is to see that the majority of women get the abortions that they want. So that's definitely true. I think that The challenge around some of this, and I disagree slightly, I think, with Damon, that I think that the pro-choice movement has more room for compromise or for a lesser legal framework for abortion than the hard edge of the anti-abortion movement. On the hard edge, it's pretty hard for people who really believe that the fetus is the moral and legal equivalent to a born person to accept anything that would permit abortions to go on. And so the absolutism there, I think, in many of the states pushes legislators who might follow public opinion on this to not follow public opinion on this. So that's, to me, a very, very important equation here. I think for those of us who are generally speaking in favor of abortion, the challenge around some of this is whether we are going to be willing to back away to some extent from the rights framework. Personally, I think the rights framework is over. That rights frameworks in certain situations, and abortion is one of them, is so intensely polarizing that it doesn't leave people or legislatures very much room to move in. If women's autonomy is a near absolute right, and then anything that is less than what women choose is unacceptable. And that opinion continues to be strong within the hard segment of the abortion rights movement. And I think it would be to our detriment if we continue to hold that position. It's time to shift the goal 
from rights to what we thought rights would give us, because what rights was going to give us was access. And access is what's important. You know, rights is very important in a certain philosophical frame and a certain values frame. But on a day-to-day level, if rights doesn't give you access, it's not all that useful. Linda, let me follow up on this question of access. So in a lot of cities, we're all familiar with the phenomenon of sort of the blue city in the middle of the red state. In a lot of these cities now, city councils are trying to pass ordinances to basically say they won't enforce state laws uh, against abortion. And prosecutors, DAs are saying they're not going, essentially not going to enforce these laws either. It feels almost like there are these abortion sanctuary cities that are emerging. What do you think about this? As someone who probably generally believes in local control, but also the rule of law, how do we make sense of that debate? Bad idea. (laughs) That's my uh, initial reaction. Look, we have a system of laws in our country where, you know, we have a federal government, we have state governments, and we have local governments. But when local governments try to essentially preempt the authority and rights of higher levels of government in certain areas, I think it becomes dangerous. I mean, we saw just recently in the city of New York on an entirely different issue, New York City wanted to give voting rights to people who were legal immigrants in the United States, but not yet citizens to vote in local elections. The state court decided to shut that down and said that that was uh, not within New York City's prerogative to do. And I think you would see something similar if states tried to ignore these laws. Whether or not uh, local prosecutors think it is in their interest to prosecute doctors or clinics, if they chose to continue to perform abortions, uh, there is prosecutorial discretion. And, you know, it might be that they could take that route. But again, I think it's a slippery slope. I don't like that idea. But I did want it to weigh in on a couple of things here. One is going back to the discussion of the 10-year-old and Damon's response. What is really interesting to me is that, yes, the right wing has absolute egg splattered all over its face on this issue. I mean, Tucker Carlson, in his usual disgusting fashion, tried to make a big deal about this, drawing some more than skepticism, basically calling out the stories about this child who was raped. Well, now we have an arrest, but the right wing's not given up on this as an issue. So now the new issue, as I see it on National Review today, is this young child was raped by an illegal immigrant. So we're going to focus attention away from the lack of humane treatment of this child by the state of Ohio. We're going to focus on our immigration laws. And if the Republicans will never lose any opportunity to turn any issue into an immigration issue if they can. And I find it a bit ironic since these are the same people who consider children born to illegal immigrants in the United States, so-called anchor babies, and they're very much against that. Anyway, that was one thing. But also what Francis had to say about these uh, limits, I do think it's important to remind people that the United States position under Roe and the way it worked in the United States was a bit out of step with much of Europe and many countries that we admire in terms of their laws. We did not limit abortion the way, for example, Belgium and Germany do. 
which limit elective abortion past 12 weeks from conception and essentially, I guess, 14 weeks of gestational age. Other countries do something similar. I mean, there are basically a huge number of countries that do have limits on abortion. 59 countries permit elective abortion. 36 of those limit elective abortion at 12 weeks of gestation. So I think Francis is right that if the pro-choice folks want to win on this issue, they're going to have to make some compromises in terms of getting beyond the idea that the American public is going to accept the notion that there ought to be abortion on demand at any time during pregnancy, and they're going to have to talk about what limits are reasonable, what limits are make the most sense. And she put it in terms of access as opposed to the idea of rights. And perhaps that is the best focus. I want to jump in on this, on the question of the difference between a constitutional law such as Roe and the extended availability according to gestation and the European laws. I've done a lot of work in Europe with groups there. First of all, and I think when our laws were passed, the differences between Europe and the U.S. in terms of the nature of the social contract between citizen and state was dramatically different. You can have a law for 12 weeks on abortion in Europe because you have a national health care system, in part. And women can get an abortion and it's paid for by the state. You have a system of a social net in Europe that we didn't have there and we still don't have here. You can take time off from work and abortion is slightly more open. And so you can say, I'm going to have an abortion and that's counted as a legitimate health day. You have access to greater economic aid. You have access to greater aid for children. I mean, there are many, many aspects of the social contract that is sufficiently different that women could then get abortions much earlier with much less hassle than even with the road decision women here, particularly poor women, had. You know, I'm perfectly contented with a 15-week ban. I'm perfectly content even with a 12-week ban. The other thing about the European laws, and then I'll stop, which is very different, is that, yes, most of those laws speak of the first trimester, 12 to 14 weeks, depending upon when you start counting. But all of those countries have exceptions. I mean, the UK has a law in terms of gestation that's similar to ours. It's not just merely by exception. But all of those countries have provisions within their healthcare system for decisions to be made where abortions might be necessary beyond the 12 to 14 week period. So we really would have to look at, in terms of the kinds of laws we want to see in a post-row period, we do have to look at that question of how we make it somewhat more possible for women who are in tough circumstances to be better able to access abortion within that period. 
Okay, now we're going to do a segment of various topics. Probably each person discussed one topic at a time. Linda, let me ask you, first of all, about the January 6th hearing. We had a hearing this week on Tuesday, and we got testimony from the former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. And one of the things that we got from this hearing was just a view into what the craziness of the Trump White House toward the end and this crazy meeting between, you know, Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn and the Trump lawyers. And it was a little bit surprising to see the extent of it. What do you think about that and how that's going to be received in the country? And do you have any views about Trump allegedly trying to contact a witness who had been talking to the committee? Well, first of all, I think the most damning thing that has come from all of these hearings is the depiction of a White House that was simply crazy and out of control, in which no uh, normal order and decorum took place. And I think this hurts Donald Trump, even among some of his supporters. It certainly hurts him, I think, among people who, you know, look to the White House as a place that, you know, is supposed to operate in an orderly fashion. And this idea of this meeting, six-hour meeting, went past midnight. People are screaming. There are F-bombs being thrown. There were even almost punches thrown, apparently. At least the uh, Office of Legal Counsel, uh, Mr. Hirschman, he said that, you know, if General Flynn didn't stop popping up, uh, he basically invited him to come across the room and I guess he was going to pop him. Uh, So it was just, I mean, just amazing stuff. I worked in the White House, as did Bill. I mean, this kind of thing just doesn't occur in a normal White House. It doesn't occur in any normal office. I think that's hurt terribly. I think Pat Cipollone's testimony was important. I was a little disappointed in the hearing. Uh, I thought that the fellow who had been the national spokesman for the Oath Keepers his testimony wasn't terribly relevant. I think they could have done without that. I mean, this attempt to connect the dots in terms of orders coming from the White House and activating these radical uh, militia groups, I don't think they've done a particularly good job in showing that in the way they tried to in the hearing. But I do think it was yet another nail in the coffin. And in terms of Donald Trump and whether he's going to get into the race, I don't know whether he's going to get into the race. He's now talking about apparently doing it in the fall, which would be a disaster. And finally, what we learned about Donald Trump attempting to call apparently a fairly junior member of the staff, not the kind of person that Donald Trump had ever called before or would ever be in contact with because Trump knew that this person was scheduled to testify. I think that's very worrisome. And I think the committee is right to suggest that the Justice Department better be focused on this because this looks awfully close to witness tampering. Damon, let me ask you about the other guy, not the former guy, but the guy in the White House. So Joe Biden's approval ratings, as we know, are terrible. But for some reason, Democrats as a whole seem to be doing better than he is in the polls, and they're even doing better than they were a few weeks ago. What the heck is going on? Well, I think some of it is the stuff wrapped up with Roe v. Wade being overturned and the state laws and the stories coming out about them, as we already discussed. Another part of it is the hearings and Donald Trump. Now, a lot of polls are also showing that interest in the hearings is not very high on people's rankings of the most important things going on, but it still does generate news stories that constantly reminds people of what a disaster Donald Trump was, especially his 
actions after the last election. So that can lead to what pollsters call decoupling. And it will be very interesting to see if this actually ends up becoming a solidified pattern in the polls over the coming months and then gets verified in the midterms. Decoupling is the idea that whereas normally you basically use the sitting president's approval rating as a kind of proxy to tell you how the midterm elections are going to go. And certainly going back to 1994 with Bill Clinton's first midterm and then Barack Obama's first midterm in 2010, both of them were in a little bit of trouble at that point in their presidencies. And they had really dismal midterm elections where they lost control of Congress by a kind of historic margins. And one would think, looking at Biden's even lower approval rating right now, that he would be in for something even worse. But again, it appears that we're seeing decoupling between these things. Now, meaning that what we're seeing is pollsters measuring that the loss likely to be sustained by the Democrats is considerably less than one would expect by looking at the support for Biden. The question going forward is, does this continue? Is it a kind of bounce that Democrats are enjoying as a rebound about the hearings and about the Dodds decision? And does it sort of wash out as we come to the fall and we keep getting bad inflation numbers if we do? But by the same token, we also have seen gas prices sort of softening a bit. So I think the midterms are definitely more in play now than they appeared to be two or three months ago. And the question that we have to really wonder about is, is it really possible? I mean, we live at a time where it seems like people dividing their votes in presidential elections is becoming rarer and rarer, that you don't get ticket splitting, people voting for the Democrat for the White House and a Republican for more local races. And there is no Biden on the ballot this November, but you still, again, would expect uh, to see the Democrats would get a big hit from Biden's unpopularity. But if it doesn't happen, it might be a sign that that trend is changing. Bill, Damon mentioned gas prices. What do you think about the economic trends going into the election? I mean, we have the short-term trend of the gas prices coming down, but we have the inflation report, like 9%, I think it was. We have the possibility of rate hikes. How do you think that's going to go? I'm not a seer, but I've learned economists, for the most part, aren't either. <laughs> so I'll plunge right in. I don't think that the economic situation is likely to change quickly enough to have a positive impact on the midterms for Democrats. What we know for sure is that the Federal Reserve Board was deeply alarmed by the most recent inflation statistics released a few days ago, and that it is now committed to drastic rate increases at its next meeting. I mean, the debate has shifted so dramatically and so quickly that now the argument is between those who want a three-quarter of a percentage point increase, which is very large by historical standards, and a full percentage point increase, which would be a record by historical standards. This is going to have an immediate impact on mortgage rates and a bunch of other things besides. And People who are already experiencing difficulties are going to experience even more difficulties. So if the election boils down to an election on the economy, the Democrats are going to lose and lose badly. And I think that's already baked in. 
Francis, can I ask you about President Biden's trip to the Middle East and in particular to Saudi Arabia? We're less than four years out from the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. What do you think of our president going to Saudi Arabia and making at least some kind of gesture to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, ostensibly in the name of fighting Putin? So there's a moral cause for it, but there's also a moral cost. What do you think? I'm deeply disappointed. First of all, I recognize that there are some very serious reasons and even some ethical reasons to worry about the economic well-being of people in our country and uh, that perhaps Biden is emphasizing that point of doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people if he can get some concessions from Saudi Arabia. On that side, I temper my disappointment. But the reality is that it just reinforces Biden's lack of boldness and his enormous weakness. I mean, first of all, he just shouldn't do it. He should not meet with MBS. And that means he shouldn't go to Saudi Arabia because he can't go to Saudi Arabia and not meet with MBS. But to really downplay, which he will do, to downplay that the issue of human rights in Saudi Arabia, not just the murder of Khashoggi, but the general situation of human rights, arrests, torture, etc. He's not going to make it into, you know, a book called Profiles of Courage. Okay. Many politicians will not. Thank you, everyone. Now let's go to our highlights and lowlights of the week. Linda, can we start with you? Yes, and I have a low light, and it uh, does harken back to our discussion of the hearings this week. John Bolton, who was the National Security Advisor until he left, was basically fired, I guess, by Donald Trump in 2019. He was on TV commenting on the hearings on Tuesday. He was on the Jake Tapper show. And in the process of criticizing the committee and the way it's handled these hearings and the efforts to essentially promote the idea of a coup that was orchestrated by President Trump and his supporters, John Bolton said, this wasn't a coup. His, his exact words were, as somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, not here, but you know, other places, takes a lot of work and that's not what Donald Trump did. Well, that caused quite a firestorm, you know, a national security advisor to the president, somebody who was at the UN, a man whom I very much admire and respect, talking about having planned coups while in the employee of the U.S. government was not a good thing. And by the way, I think it was a really lousy criticism of the hearings as well. The fact that a bunch of Keystone cops, or not Keystone cops, but I don't know, Laurel and Hardy try to rob a bank and are very bad at it, does not make it any less an attempt to rob a bank. And the fact that the Trump folks were very, I think, amateurish in their coup attempts does not make it any less serious in terms of the fact that it was a threat to our democracy. And because they were aided by people in Congress, they were aided by some people in the states as well. It could have turned out much worse, despite how inept Trump and his coup planners were. Well said. Damon, your highlight or lowlight? My lowlight is a real disappointment to me. I'm a big admirer of Europe in all kinds of ways. I've lived in Germany, and I love the Germans in all kinds of ways. But it was really disappointing to me this week to see that 
The promises that came from the German government uh, in late February, shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine, about increasing dramatically German defense spending in order to meet and exceed the 2% minimum that really NATO requires from member states actually isn't going to happen. Who knows? Maybe it'll end up coming out if this becomes a big scandal over there. But at the moment, it appears as if there's some accounting trickery going on on and a special 100 billion euro fund that was created after the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine will be sort of used to do double duty to both increase in one column and then also make it seem as if Germany is spending more on defense when its actual allocations have not increased as much. The idea that Germany is, is sort of playing accounting tricks with this is very disappointing. The invasion of Ukraine changes the geopolitical situation in Europe dramatically. We are putting our money where our mouth is, and uh, Germany, as the most significant state in Europe, really needs to do the same. They're the ones on the front lines there. And although they are going along with uh, NATO expansion to a uh, Sweden and Finland, which is great. The notion that uh, they're sort of flinching when it comes to actually spending the money that's needed is pretty disappointing. So boo on you to the Germans this week. Thanks, Damon. Bill, what's your nominee this week? I have a highlight in the sort of the same issue zone. Guess what? These wonderful new multiple missile launcher long-range systems called HIMARS really work. The Ukrainians have learned how to use them in record time, and they're using these systems to more than double the range within which they can strike, for example, Russian ammunition dumps. They just blew up a big one. We have sent them a limited number, and I have advocated and will continue to advocate that we send them a lot more as fast as we can with accelerated training, which they pick up very rapidly, apparently, because it's on the baseline of eight years of NATO training that we've already provided to them. If I ask myself, what are the potential game changers in this war, which is being dominated by Russian artillery, my answer is these advanced missile systems that can nullify and then some the advantage that the Russians now have. So Biden administration get over your qualms about increasing transfers of these highly sophisticated missile systems to the Ukrainians as fast as possible. Some of them will be destroyed. As a Ukrainian official said, well, it's a war, isn't it? That shouldn't be a decisive consideration. Let's do it. Well, now I feel all uplifted. Francis, what's your highlight or lowlight? My highlight of the week are the Capitol Police who were present during the hearing and who refused to accept, although they acknowledge, the apology of the guy who testified, period. So I'll add my, I don't know whether to call it a highlight or a low light. It's sort of an irony. I'm a sports fan, right? And we had a tennis tournament that just ended, Wimbledon, the big tennis championship, which they banned the Russian and Belarusian players because they wanted to make a statement that we're not going to tolerate Putin's war. And so none of those players could play. Meanwhile, and what must be a, an absolutely bitter irony, 
The women's singles championship is won by a Russian, a woman who is Russian, was born in Moscow, but who had played officially under the flag of Kazakhstan. Her name is, I will not be able to pronounce it correctly, Elena Rybakina is my best guess. She was a fine player, but it is an absolutely bitter irony that having banned the Russians and the Belarusians, a Russian won anyway. And I'm sure that Daniil Medvedev and Andrei Rublev and other Russian players who weren't allowed to play in this tournament are looking at this ironic result with a very, very Russian sense of humor. I have really enjoyed this conversation, and I want to thank each of you, Francis, Bill, Damon, and Linda. And I want to thank Mona for allowing me to guest host this week. Our producer is Katie Cooper, and our engineer and our editor is Joe Armstrong. Mona will be back next week. Thank you all for listening.